and welcome to this podcast, Cities, Regions and Built Environment by Stevenson Harwood, which forms part of our Insight series around the COP26 summit currently taking place. My name is Matthew Angel and I'm a trainee solicitor in the Real Estate Finance Group. I'm joined by James Stiles, who is a consultant in the real estate team. Today, we're going to discuss the minimum energy efficiency standards, better known by the acronym MEES. We'll look at the current MEES requirements, likely future changes, and consider whether MEES create any real environmental benefits. We'll be dealing exclusively with commercial property, so do be aware that different rules apply to domestic properties. So, first of all, James, what are the current MEES requirements and how are these requirements going to change in the next few years? Hi, Matthew, and hello, everyone. Well, to answer your question, Matthew, we need a bit of background. MEES work in tandem with energy performance certificates, which are better known as EPCs. And EPCs aim in, frankly, a fairly rough and ready way to tell you how energy efficient a building is and to give it a rating from A, which would be a very efficient building, through to G, which would be an inefficient building. Now, MEES only kick in where the property has an EPC. So one of the simple ways to avoid MEES is not to have an EPC at all. But as you might expect, there's a catch. And the catch is that you're obliged to obtain an EPC before you market a property for either sale or letting. It's also worth noting that anyone who can provide access to a building can choose to commission an EPC for it. So a tenant could, inadvertently or even deliberately, trip up a landlord by getting an EPC for its own purposes and then triggering the MEES requirements. And once you have an EPC, that EPC lasts for 10 years. Now, currently under the MEES regulations, landlords can't let F or G-rated properties unless there is an exemption. At the moment, that only catches the grant of new leases. But from the 1st of April 2023, and remember that's only 18 months away now, existing leases are also going to be caught. So from then on, you can be in breach just because of an existing lease that may have been granted several years ago is continuing. What's likely to change? Well, the current proposal, though it's not yet law, is that by the 1st of April 2025, all rented properties will have to have a valid EPC and be registered. So when current EPCs expire, you'll have to get a new one, and that will keep properties within the MEES net. It's also expected that standards are going to be significantly tightened. By 2027, it's expected that a C rating will be required, and by 2030, it's likely that a B rating is going to be needed. And that's a very, very high standard indeed. And even by the government's own estimate, it's likely to require more than £55 billion worth of expenditure across the whole industry. Thank you, James. Given the expectations that the standards are going to be tightened, are there any exceptions to the requirements to have an EPC E rating before granting a lease? Yes, there are a number of potential exemptions. But, and frankly, it's an important but, there is a significant compliance burden in order to be able to rely on them. The rules aren't easy to wriggle out of unless you have good cause. Most notably, you have to register in advance to qualify for any of the exemptions, and most only last for a fixed period of time. So by way of example, probably the best known of the exemptions is the seven-year payback exemption. In essence, that exemption means that you don't have to carry out any energy efficiency improvement works if those works won't pay for themselves in terms of energy savings within seven years. But to qualify for that exemption, you'll have to provide three quotes for the works from qualified installers and also comprehensive figures related to energy usage. 
You'll then need to provide detailed calculations to show how and why you've concluded that the works don't satisfy the seven-year payback test. And that is not simple to do. Other notable exemptions include the devaluation exemption, the unsuitable works exemption, and the consent exemption. In very broad terms, the devaluation exemption provides that you don't need to carry out works that would decrease the capital value of the building by more than 5%. And quite similarly, the unsuitable measures exemption means that you don't have to do works that would have a negative impact on the fabric or the structure of the property. The consent exemption is more practical in its effect. It basically provides that you don't need to carry out works that require the consent of a third party if you've tried to obtain the consent and you haven't been able to get it. So if landlords feel that it's not cost effective to tick that EPC rating box, it's definitely worth exploring the possibility of applying for an exemption. The rules are quite complex, but if you carry out appropriate analysis and you get good advice from your lawyers and surveyors, you can save really significant sums. And you may then choose to spend those savings on improving environmental standards in other more meaningful ways. So with all the costs, do MEs actually secure any environmental benefits? Well, I think that the simple answer to that question must be yes. But whether the maximum cost-benefit ratio is achieved and whether they promote the most efficient way of reducing environmental impact is certainly debatable. The principal benefits of MEs are that they ensure a standardised approach to energy efficiency. They do help maintain high standards of building design and they do encourage environmental improvement works to buildings. But there are several shortfalls. For example, EPCs focus on design, so the theoretical performance of the building rather than the actual energy output. So basing MEs on EPCs can be quite misleading and it can indeed be inaccurate. Also, I think in the industry, it's fair to say that EPCs are often seen as a rather unsophisticated compliance tool rather than a really robust indicator of energy efficiency. Given all these shortfalls with MEs, are there any better alternatives then, James? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, I think there are quite a lot of different views on that. But the government is certainly consulting on more sophisticated methods of assessing energy performance, focusing more on energy usage through advanced metering. Now, advanced metering enables accurate measurement and understanding of how a building is actually performing. And for example, it can provide real-time updates of how much energy is being used and precisely where in the building it is being used. Now, that data is enormously helpful as it means that Environmental strategies can be far more focused on the areas of inefficiency in the building, which might then be improved by changes in practice, as well as changes in the fabric of the building itself. In addition, encouraging changes in behaviour can produce real results. Landlords and tenants across the board are, I think, now keener than ever to reduce their carbon footprint. But more could and should be done to encourage collaboration between owners and occupiers so that they can target environmental inefficiencies. If both landlords and tenants had a vested economic interest in improving performance, rather than landlords simply being left to foot the capex bill, the pace of change would certainly increase. Ultimately, the design of the building actually only does so much. A lot depends on the behaviour of the occupiers themselves. And, for example, one of the more topical questions that we're grappling with at the moment is how to address occupier behaviour with hybrid working. For example, can offices be made more energy efficient by having whole areas where the electricity supply can be turned on or off. There's also an argument that there should be more carrot as well as stick. For example, tax breaks for actually reaching certain targets might encourage more to actually comply with MEs 
rather than simply seeking to rely on the exemptions. But I do accept that the Chancellor does have rather a lot of competing objectives to juggle with just at the moment. Great. Thank you very much, James, for, for joining us and thank you for listening. You'll appreciate that we've only been able to scratch the surface of a detailed topic in the limited time that we've had available today. And undoubtedly, you'll have many questions arising from the issues that we've discussed, and we'd be delighted to help you answer those. Do please get in touch with Archie Campbell, James Stiles, or your usual SH contact if you'd like to know more. Thank you. Thank you.